that there's any wisdom that I have that I don't guess I'm going to excite you with my band. I know it. Pianist, composer, band leader, and 2013 NEA Jazz Master, Eddie Palmieri. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Known as one of the finest Latin jazz pianists of the past 50 years, Eddie Palmieri is a band leader of both salsa and Latin jazz orchestras. His playing blends the rhythm of his Puerto Rican heritage and the explosiveness of the Cuban music he heard as a kid in the Bronx with the melody and complexity of his jazz influences. These influences include Thelonious Monk, Herbie Hancock, and most notably his brother, the great Charlie Palmieri. Eddie Palmieri's professional career as a pianist took off in the early 1950s when he played with various bands in New York City, including the popular Tito Rodriguez Orchestra. In 1961, Palmieri formed his own band, La Perfecta. La Perfecta's unconventional front line of trumpets created the innovative sound that mixed American jazz into Afro-Cuban music. In 1975, Palmieri won the first-ever Grammy Award for Best Latin Recording for his album, The Son of Latin Music. It was by no means the last. So far, Eddie has won nine Grammy Awards, including two for his influential recording with Tito Puente, Masterpiece. In addition to the Grammys, Eddie Palmieri has received many awards and honors, including the U.B. Blake Award, the Harlem Renaissance Award, and the J. McShann Lifetime Achievement Award. And now he's been named a 2013 NEA Jazz Master. Even though Eddie may be considered the elder statesman of Latin jazz, believe me, he shows no signs of slowing down. We finally found some time in his busy schedule and sat down at the new opera center in New York City. Given that he and his only sibling, Charlie, both had spectacular musical careers, I was very curious about his family and the place of music in their lives. My mother arrived in 1925 from Puerto Rico. She was about 16, going on 17, already had experience of being a seamstress. My father arrived in 1926 because uh, my grandmother didn't like him, so she chased him with a broom all over Ponce, Puerto Rico. And then they married in New York. My mother and father got married in 26. My brother was born in 27, and I was born nine years later. No brothers, no sisters in between, so I was quite blessed. Your mother loved music. She loved music. She wanted my brother to be a pianist, and he certainly was. He was a phenom at 14. The only problem he had, he was already working at 14 in some of the dances, you know, he would go early to play. But the worst thing was at the end, he said, Charlie, your mother's outside waiting for you. That didn't work right. To bring him home. <laughs> bring him home. <laughs> and then at eight years old, I went on the piano. And then until I was 13, because I wanted to be my brother's drummer, I was banging all over the house. And my grandfather told my mother, you know, 
You better get the kid the timbales he's asking for because he's ruining all the lamps, all the furniture. Let's get him the timbales because Tito Puente had made the timbales very popular in those years, 1949, going into 50. And my brother, uh, when he got married, I was 11 years old, and then he went with Tito Puente for a couple of years. So you could imagine, I was like, wow, you know, I'm 13. So then my mother, being brilliant, only superiority of women could do that, okay? No she bought me a metal box that weighed more than two or three pairs of timbales, and then she would wait for my uncle to play the horn, to tell me to come down to go do the engagement, you know? And as I picked up this box, this metal box, she would tell me, Eddie, in Spanish, she said, don't you see how beautiful your brother looks when he goes to work and he doesn't have to carry an instrument? What will you learn, Eduardo? I'm learning what? I'm learning. <laughs> and it took two years for her to convince me that I was on the wrong track. And I, then I made a, a deal with my cousin, with my uncle, that he couldn't refuse, and I went back on the piano. And you studied with Margaret Barnes. Margaret Barnes was one of my teachers because of my brother. At 11 years old, I was studying with Miss Margaret Barnes. She was a great teacher, great concert pianist. She did the Negro history books. And her studio was in the Carnegie Hall building. And she was doing her own concert at the same time. She was a concert player. But my brother was her student. He used to recommend me for either teachers or bands later on. So he was my main inspiration, you were right. Now your father was an electrician. He repaired radio. Radio and television. But then he bought a candy store. A candy store that was maybe in the early 1900s. It was all red, I never forgotten that. And he turned into one of the most beautiful luncheonette that my mother and grandmother cooked and my grandfather and my father were partners. But they didn't really get along together so it didn't last too long. But my grandmother, one of the greatest cooks, and my mother too. And the place was doing great. And I was like the soda jerk. I made great egg creams, you know, sell cigarettes for 18 cents a pack or four for five cents. Then it got a little tighter economic, so we had to go three for five cents. <laughs> and I would bring up the empty sodas up and down the basement and that, but I controlled the jukebox. <laughs> best music that you could imagine. And all the guys were playing, the seniors were playing stickball. They would come in there and I would have Tito Puente, Tito Rodriguez, my Chito, which was the orchestra. Machito is Afro-Cubans at that time. That orchestra started in 1939. And all these records and all that I was putting in the jukebox and it was called the Mambo, the restaurant. I named it. That was the height of the mambo that was coming from Cuba and the highest position that we've ever had in our genre worldwide, that, the mambo. You really kind of came of age at an incredible time in Latin music in I, New York City. I was City. very fortunate because when my brother started, then I heard the great orchestras from the, you know, the big bands, Woody Herman, Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller, and, my brother would bring him in, you know, because that was by the pre-war. And I, I was born in Manhattan between 112th, between Madison and Park. But we moved by 1941, 42, right, World War I, uh, World War II, excuse me, into the Bronx. 
Well, they're known in the South Bronx. Bronx was gorgeous then, you know, and that's where I was raised. So then there, there was the commercial radio, like in the early 48, 49 years, was playing the Machido Orchestra, Tino Puente, Tino Rodriguez. So we were listening to that all day long, and that's what I loved. I wanted to be a dance orchestra leader, and I was able to fulfill my dream. In 1949, if I think I have this right, that's when the Palladium opened. Exactly. In 49. Right. Can you talk about the importance of the Palladium for Latin music in New York? The Palladium was known as Alba Dance Studio. It was a two-story high, right across the street from the Ed Sullivan Theater. On Wednesday, you had the Mambo Show, which was the amateur hour, and they put numbers on the back. Like in the movie, they shoot horses, don't they? But whoever won, you got $25 a piece. Then came the professional dancers. In the audience, you could have maybe a Marlon Brando, Kim Novak, all the Hollywood starlets because it was the height of the mambo. Then on Fridays, you had all the gamblers. They would take all the tables. They left a lot of money there, too. On Saturday, you had the blue collar, mostly Puerto Rican. And then Sunday was black, Afro-American. It was intermingled of different nationalities that had nothing to do whether you were green, purple, white, what you know. We came to dance. Greatest dancers came there to dance to the greatest orchestras ever. When I played the Palladium Ballroom in 1956 for the first time, we worked four nights. We did 16 shows for $72, and they took our taxes. We were getting paid $18 to do four sets a night of 45 to 50 minutes. By 1961, late 61, I started my own orchestra. And by 63, I played the Palladium. I stood in the Palladium, and I closed the Palladium in 1966. What was your first professional gig? In 1955, with a quintet. And we played Cutch's Country Club. That was the, the first gig, Monticello. I was going to say the Catskills, right? Yeah. yeah, the Catskills. Then I started with Vicentico Valdez in 56, which is the best thing that happened to me. Then I be became aware of the music coming out of Cuba. I already knew some because of my brother, naturally, but really got into and I dedicated my whole life to study and analyze how could a 78 recording of less than three minutes excite me so much. And I studied the structures of why it happened. I learned it intuitively until I learned it scientifically later with a teacher called Mr. Bob Bianco, who took me into another world and he was the harmonic teacher for jazz, but he also taught the Schillinger system. Yeah, I was recommended to him by the great trombonist Barry Rogers that played with me and uh, when we started La Perfecta, you know. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But before I met him, I went with Vicentico Valdez, and we played like the graveyard shift, what they called, which meant the summer in the Palladium for two months, you know, July and August, until the big bands came back from the Catskills. So I played with Vicentico in 56, then I went with Tito Rodriguez for two years, but he didn't have a band. He had a Vegas act, 
which didn't go well, and I still win them for 58 to 60, but I did record live at the Palladium in 1959 for United Artists, and it's a great, great recording live at the Palladium Ballroom with Tito Rodriguez. That Tito Rodriguez album, Live at the Palladium, had a lot of jazz to it too, yeah, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, Great band. It was mixed between Latin and jazz. And I played, I was able to do it because I was playing already with Vicentico Valdez. Well, this leads us to La Perfecta. How did oh. you come to form La Perfecta? Uh, I always wanted a conjunto. Explain that meant, what that means. Without saxophones, just trumpets. You had timbales, conga, bongo, bass, piano, vocal, three trumpets. The trumpets and that, you know. So there was a friend of mine, it's called Becco, you know, Angelo Rosado. He used to deliver groceries. He eventually, in Hunts Point Avenue, which was the Hunts Point Palace also, Southern Boulevard in the Bronx, in the theater building, he took a, a floor and he turned that into a place called the Tritons Social Club. I went there on a Tuesday, and by that time, Johnny Pacheco, who had been playing with my brother, Charlie, and Johnny Pacheco was a great percussionist. And my brother brings him in with the quartet. And my brother records with him for United Artists. And Pacheco then goes on his own and becomes so popular. Then he did this in, the, in Beckles Tritons, a jam session on Tuesdays. And I went there one Tuesday. And there's where I, I hear and see Barry Rogers, who had long hair, like the hippie. I always said later on after we met and worked together that if, if God is perfection, then Barry was near perfection. Everything he did, he was a, truly a genius. He was the trombonist. He was trombonist. a huh? trombonist. He was a great mechanic, a great photographer, great driver. I mean, just one after the, everything. He sailed boats with his father and everything. He died so young. But Barry was so essential to La Perfecta. And we started with seven, and then we added another trombone. We had different trombone players, but he found the Brazilian trombone is called Jose Rodriguez. And those two trombone players have left forever what will never be equal, you know, by two trombone players, ever, ever. I don't care who comes. whole new president of an orchestra having two trombones up front because Barry sang choral with the lead singer and the flute player played wooden flute which is the sound I wanted. It's a beautiful timber. So I had the flute, I had Barry and then we got the other trombone and the perfecta was with eight. The perfecta changed everything in, in the history of our genre in my opinion, certainly in New York and then influenced the world because after that all the pawn shops got rid of their trombones because everybody wanted to play trombone, you know. Well, if we're talking about La Perfecta, we're talking about Azucar. Uh, Azucar Pati is the fifth album in 1965, and it was just awarded to the Library of Congress to death forever. One of the great and songs. And it changed the whole ballgame, because you could only allow two minutes and 45 seconds, and we did it eight minutes and 30 seconds. 
And I told the gentleman who was the A&R man that was artist of repertoire, his name was Teddy Rieg. This is not going to be a, a normal, any. Just, just record it. Don't worry about it. Eight minutes and 30 seconds, it became one of the biggest hits ever in our genre. How was it getting radio play for that? Oh, no problem, because Morris Levy controlled, you know, the jazz station. And whoever he had his hands on, they had no choice but to play it, whether they liked it or not. Another great influence on your music was Claudio Saverda. Another teacher. He was fastidious in the independence of the finger. The independence of the finger is like to put them all on the key bed, three quarters of an inch down to the key bed, and then order them up. If you control the fingers, then you can get thirds, since it's all uneven. How are you going to get clear thirds like bells? So it's touch press, touch press, touch press. Very slowly, very patiently, and he helped me tremendously, which helped me to accompany with one hand and solo with the other. On Acid Car, you were accused of having two piano players because you were playing, yeah. you were soloing and accompanying That's what I was so, that's time. What I would try. I got, as a matter of fact, when I did that recording, I brought Claudio Savadra to this recording studio, and what he heard, he freaked out. <laughs> Was I was being a drummer, so I wasn't prepared as much as a pianist. I always said that my brother was a pianist and I'm the piano player, you know. But I said, I gotta come up with something different. So, and since I played drums, since I was left handed, you know, it took me years to break that left hand though, but now I could accompany myself in a typical guajeo and solo with the right. Can we talk about your first recording session? How different was it in a recording session as opposed to playing? in front of an audience who are dancing their Well, I have been out. playing with an audience all the time, you know, naturally, you know, because I was playing with the other orchestras. Yeah. But my first recording of my own, that was a problem. Because I have, when I play, I, and now they stop the recording, and what is that? And now we stop, and now we stop looking for this sound. What is this that we're hearing? What's the matter? And everybody's looking, and then they realize it was me as I'm playing. They either wanted to gag me when I played, or certainly cover the whole piano, which they did. It was a it was a mess, you know. But after that, the guy goes, "Look, that's the way he plays. Just leave him alone," you know. You're doing all these gigs and you're recording these albums with La Perfecta. Right. The repertoire was your songs. A, a majority of them were my songs. Yeah. When did you start composing? Right away, because I knew from the experience of the other bands that if you're going to be respected by your peers, you have to have your own signature. You have to have your own uh, musical language, which was my compositions. And they all became hits on their own. Everything I wrote was quite uh, exciting, you know, and, and I certainly knew how to excite. I knew it intuitively, because I studied the Cuban structures. When I went with Bob Bianco, I learned scientifically why it works. And that's because it's tension and resistance that must be in all the compositions. 
to lead to a, an exciting musical climax. And that you build up when you have, you know, from the piano solo to the bongo to the timbal, you're creating more and more tension. And you're creating more what they call synchronization of that rhythm section. And when that full tuity comes in on the trombones with the flute, that's going to blow you out. You know? <laughs> That was my mission, to do that to the dancers, you know, and they loved the band, and it was a band to enjoy listening to, watching them play, and dancing to it. I think of La Perfected, there's jazz within a yeah. context of dance. And very good, you're absolutely right. Because at that time already, I had been studying with Bob Bianco, and I was more into the jazz chordal structure, but the band now is a young band. You know, everything changed. The perfecta broke up. I went through mental situation when they broke up. That was because of a lot of different problems. Ego set in and then not taking care of the record. You know, all that, all that happens, you're all human. But you snap out of it. When I was kept studying with Bob Bianco, Barry Rogers left. He left to do his own thing. And we met later on in a recording in 1974 that we did call uh, Sentido and the Son of Latin Music. In 1975, which wins the first Grammy, Barry was brought back to me to work together. It was magical when we got together. But between 68 and 74, we, we, you know, we didn't have anything to do with each other musically. So I was a new man. Then we come to the son of Latin music. Oh. You won the first of your nine Grammys for that. And it was also the first time that Neris recognized Latin music. 17 years it took for the unfortunate orchestras like Tito Rodriguez, Machito, my brother Charlie, never had a chance to be nominated for Grammy. didn't exist. And in 1975, I win the first one, won for all the Latin genres of music and all the Latin musicians in the world. Next year, I win it again, but unfortunately, it's for an album called Unfinished Masterpiece. The record company said, you know, you know we're not going to extend any more money. So they, re they released it without my permission, and I told them, if you release this album, I'll never record for you again. And they certainly didn't believe me, so I locked up myself in my home for three years. Never came out, never played, never recorded. I came out when CBS buys my contract off them for a half a million dollars. I record Voodoo. It doesn't sell, so I go back into the hands of these original owners. So I locked myself up in my home for another two years, and they went bankrupt. And then they sold my contract to Fania Records. And then we recorded three more albums that won three more Grammys. Another unusual thing that you've done is, all right, we have jazz within this dance context, but at the same time, you have lyrics that are very philosophical 
and political. And that's, a, you know, a third leg of that triangle that was also quite unusual, that marriage of all three. In 68, 70, you know, there was tension in the streets for sure, you know. I was playing prisons for free. At Sing Sing, I played twice. I went to uh, Lewisburg when they were bringing in the people from Watergate. I played Rikers Island. As a matter of fact, uh, Dizzy Gillespie went with me to Rikers Island. He was my MC that day at Rikers Island. And this is what he said. Before I bring on my Latin soul brother, Eddie Palmieri, and all the convicts are sitting down, he goes, Eddie, have you ever seen such a captive audience? <laughs> I said, what a way to break this in. But I did all the prisons, you know, and things like that. I was in the street, you know, and then that led to competitions like Justicia, Justice, and then I wrote a competition called La Libertad. I want to talk about a, a CD you made, and I don't speak Spanish, so please forgive me, but Vamanos Pal Palmonte. With your brother. My brother playing organ. Right. Now, how One of the that... greatest solos ever. It'll never be duplicated. He can play that organ. My brother was a genius, you know. And then uh, uh, he takes a great, great solo. And that Vamro Palmonte had to do with conditions that exist, you know, uh, economical, you know, t tensions, everything's going up on you. You know, for example, rent, taxes, down the line, and wages tend to fall. So that's the deal. I'm jumping ahead because I, I really want to talk about a CD made in 1999 with Tito Puente. Oh, you mean a masterpiece? Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we have been talking about it through Ralph Mercado. Ralph Mercado was the greatest promoter we ever had. He died also, passed away, right after Tito, a little bit. He started in a, a place called the 301 Club. It was a, a, a club on top of a car wash in Brooklyn. Nice to go and play there for him. Then from there, he became the greatest promoter ever. He did all the concerts for Fania all over the world. And he, his favorite band was I, but we were like oil and water. You know, we, you know, we had a deep friendship, but we clashed all the time. And we had arguments about monies, you know, and advances. He says, Eddie, you want to have an advance on a gig that we don't even have yet, Eddie? <laughs> you know? I said, but Ralphie, we're only talking about paper, man. He goes, yeah. Well, why don't we start you this time with your paper? So those kind of arguments. <laughs> and, but we really were very close, and he loved my band all the time because we, he knew that I was kidding around on the bandstand, you know? And unfortunately, he passed away. But it was his project. We do the Tito Puente uh, thing. The problem with, with it, Tito was very ill for about seven, eight years. He had a, 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 a valve problem in his heart but he rose to the occasion to do that album. bandstand warrior we've ever, ever had. My brother, Tito Rodriguez, Machino, all of them, and myself, but Tito was amazing 
that one of the great stories is he never took care of his business, he never bothered. And one day he calls the office with a young gentleman called uh, Juan Toro, you know, and he tells him, hey Juan, I've been looking at my contract, that's what he's talking about. Gee, something's wrong here. And, and Juan said, well, what is it, Tito, what's wrong here? He said, here, I'll play two, two sets. So the young man thinks Tito might want to play one long set, two 45-minute sets put into one. He goes, well, Tito, look, I'll talk to the promoter, and you do one long set. No, I, I always do three. You know, I mean, it was amazing. He just came to play, and he loved with his life and nothing. And he was a hell of a drummer, you know, a showman. He changed the whole thing, vibes. He was a tremendous musician. And we became very close. He was my brother's very dear friend. But Tito Puente left a tremendous vacuum, like my brother Charlie, like Machito, like Tino Rodriguez, you know. I'm like sort of the last of the Mohegans, you know. You also collaborated with Brian Lynch. Brian Lynch has been with me two, two centuries now. He looks great for being 200 years old. He looks great. And Conrad Erwick, the greatest trombonist, 200 years old also. And the timbal player, two centuries also, Jose Clausel. Brian Lynch is a professor at University of Miami now, and Conrad is at the University of Rutgers University in Jersey in the jazz department. They're great musicians. They have recorded with me great albums. When we did the Latin jazz album of Palmas, oh. you know, it's, that's a classic. Uh, it, because my Latin jazz is based on instrumental mambos. There's not straight ahead Latin jazz. There's structures that the instrumental mamas were very exciting for the dancers. The only thing it didn't have was the lyrics, but it had, it was like a very exciting Latin dance album with vocal. It was called Instrumental Mamas. That's the structures that I use. I don't, again, I guess I'm going to excite you, you're going to dance in your chair. Finally, nine Grammys, 36 albums, yeah. and now you're an NEA jazz master. Oh, a jazz master. I'm so honored. I, it's unbelievable that I was bestowed this honor. And harmonically, you know, I've went into the jazz world and my form of playing, I've been accepted in the jazz world, you know. I've been very, very, very fortunate. And being accepted, into the, the National Endowment of the Arts is my biggest honor, and I'm very, very honored and humbled that I was able to receive it. And I receive it in the name of my brother Charlie also, because that was uh, my inspiration. That's pianist, composer, band leader, and 2013 NEA Jazz Master, Eddie Palmieri. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. For information about the music you've been listening to, go to arts.gov and click on the transcript of this podcast. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link in our podcast page. Next week, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Taylor Branch talks about his three-volume history, America in the King Years. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.